Open your Bibles to Matthew 5 as we come back to this precious section of Scripture we know as the Beatitudes, which you've had the joy of exploring over the last several weeks. And as is so often the case, we find uh, where we are in Scripture is the perfect place to be. So many uh, times uh, through over the several weeks past now, we, we realize that the Lord has uh, designed uh, His Word in such a, a, a profound and beautiful way and uh, speaks to our life, but in a very providential way brings us to those passages that are most poignant for the times that we're in. And today certainly is no exception. And as we come looking at these Beatitudes the last several weeks, we have come to one dominant idea that rings through all of them, and that is the fact that true, genuine followers of Christ are unique. They're distinct. It was the whole purpose of the message for Jesus to his disciples, was to help them to see and understand that one who is a true follower, one who's going to enter into the kingdom of heaven, is not just simply the superficial follower. They're not just simply the religious facade. This is someone who has been transformed from the inside out to the point where they have a proper view of their spiritual poverty, where they're mourning over their spiritual state to the point of repentance, where they are filled with genuine meekness and self-sacrifice, all that becoming a way of life for them. They hunger and thirst for righteousness, and God fills them with hearts of mercy and sincerity and purity of devotion. And all of that meekness and mercy transforms them into peacemakers. Those are the descriptions that Jesus gives, not of the exceptional believer, not of the occasional believer. Those are the basic descriptions of those who enter into the kingdom of heaven. This is his way of describing what a true child of God looks like for the sake of his disciples. And if you're a believer and you read all of those things that we've read in the Beatitudes and you hear them talked about, they resonate with your heart because they resonate with your understanding of the gospel. They resonate with what originally called you to begin with. They called you out of the darkness and into the light. You understand this spiritual poverty and this mourning and this meekness and all those other things because that's the beauty of the gospel and you aspire to live that way. You want your life to reflect exactly what Jesus has talked about here. And so as you hear these things You believe exactly what Jesus says, that if you live this way, you will be blessed. You don't doubt it in your mind. You know that this is the path of blessing. You only hope that you could live according to it. However, that's not the perspective of every every person. Not everyone hears what Jesus describes here. And considers it on one hand to be lovely or on the other hand to be blessed. They don't believe that this is really something that practically works out for blessing. And they don't believe it's even always something that's desirable. You might expect that such peaceful and merciful and humble people would be valued by everyone. But the reality is, the sad reality is, they're not. In fact, not only are they not valued, they're hated. They are despised. People who are around these such uh, uh, blessed people, people who are around of these kinds of spiritual people, they often respond with animosity and hostility because they feel intimidated, because they feel ashamed, because they feel condemned, because of whatever. But for all those reasons... They respond not with love and affection towards these beatitudes or towards these kinds of people. They respond with contempt. They respond with persecution, which is exactly where Jesus lands in his final beatitude in our focus this morning in verse 10. Because after giving all of these descriptions of what Jesus says will mark a true believer, he has to give us this closing reminder in verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
He ends the same way he began, talking about those who are going to inherit the kingdom of heaven and reminding us that if you are genuinely a believer, if you truly are someone who has been touched by the gospel and impacted and transformed in all these ways, if you're someone who's going to enter into the kingdom of heaven, you're someone who's going to suffer persecution. It's a certainty. It's a certainty, he says. Like Paul says to Timothy, those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Or another way to say that is to the extent that you grasp and understand the Beatitudes, to that same extent that you live them out, you will receive a backlash, you will receive a, a, a sort of commensurate kind of animosity from the world. And when this happens, as Jesus goes on to elaborate in verse 11, when this happens, you're blessed. In fact, he says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. And so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, that would strike a lot of people as strange, that you're going to actually declare someone blessed who's being insulted, blessed who's being maligned, blessed who's being reviled and persecuted, blessed who's suffering. It would not only strike them as strange that you would pronounce them blessed, but it would strike them maybe even strange at the position that Jesus puts it, because he had just talked about peacemakers and talked about people who were striving for peace. And mercy and all those things. And yet right after talking about that, he seems to expect that for all of your mercy, for all of your purity of devotion, for all of your attempts at peace, Jesus seems to expect that in fact, at the end of the day, you're going to provoke hostility and hatred and persecution. And not necessarily peace. That may surprise you, but it certainly was no surprise to Jesus. He wasn't so naive. He understood the history of the world and the history of resentment and animosity toward the righteous. He wasn't shocked when the world rejected him. He wasn't shocked when people stood against him. Although he had no sin and although he was the perfect embodiment of all of these principles of righteousness, he wasn't shocked that the world came against him with such hostility. In fact, that kind of resentment and animosity has proven itself out again and again and again in the persecution of the righteous, from, from the persecution of Abel by Cain all the way through Christ and through every faithful believer throughout all time. And Jesus knows that it will not cease. It wouldn't cease with his crucifixion and resurrection and ascension. It wouldn't cease with the founding of the church. It wouldn't cease with the establishment of Christianity as a cultural and um, an institutional force. It wouldn't cease with the rise of Western culture and its Judeo-Christian background. It wouldn't cease throughout all of time. It will not cease. And Jesus knows, even after describing the beautiful character of a believer, he knows that it will not be something that is admired by the world. In fact, it will bring hostility. But he's here to tell us that that kind of hostility and persecution brings with it profound blessings. It brings with it cause for joy. Now, we want to understand why he says this. We want to understand why he thinks this. And so to do that, we're going to dive into this the same way we have in the past. We're going to take some time this morning to, to really explore and expound the meaning of persecution as Jesus describes it here. And then for a few moments, take just a brief look at an example of this kind of persecution. So let's begin where we have in weeks past with an exposition of Jesus's meaning, an exposition of this persecution. And we'll just begin by taking note that Jesus declares a blessing on those who are persecuted for righteousness. 
They're persecuted for righteousness' sake. In other words, they're not persecuted because of their noisiness. They're not persecuted because of the particular reactions they get whenever they blast and post and scream out their opinions and views on almost every conceivable subject under the sun. He's not pronouncing a blessing on you when because of your lack of wisdom or love for others, you make yourself an unnecessary firebrand in their lives or because of your rudeness or disrespect or whatever, people become to associate you more with callousness than with genuine care. He's not saying you're blessed when you're simply an unnecessary annoyance in people's lives. Where for whatever reason... You keep inserting yourself in all the wrong ways at all the wrong times. Or as Peter says in 1 Peter 4.14, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rest on you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Or some translations say a busybody, a nuisance. Inserting yourself where you have clearly been told you're not welcome. Inserting yourself at those times of inconvenience or lack of sensitivity or whatever it might be. You might expect and you should expect people to be upset with you for that. But Jesus is not talking about that. He's talking about righteousness. He's not even really talking about direct opposition to just preaching. You might imagine that in some places persecution would happen when someone's under an oppressive atheistic government regime who's clamping down hard on the ability of churches to gather and worship and, and sing or even, or even preach the gospel and evangelize. And, and that certainly is a cause of persecution and it certainly happens. In fact, some people have estimated that there are 70 million people through the history of of the church since the time of Christ, 70 million people who have lost their lives due to persecution, and at least half of them have lost their lives in the last century alone. And so it certainly happens, and that persecution is true and it's real, but that's not primarily what Christ has in mind here. What he's talking about here is persecution from something that is far more pervasive. It's persecution for simply living righteously. What he's saying in this beatitude is that what upsets the world most, what upsets people most is when you live righteously. It is that that the world cannot tolerate. That's what produces their animosity. That's what produces their persecution because you believe and hold to and walk in the ways that Jesus just described in the Beatitudes. He's telling you that the world, for all of its talk of loving virtue, for all of its talk uh, of standing for what's right and wrong, for all of its talk about upholding society and making progress and all of those things, for all of us talk about all of that, they still and will continue to actually hate the righteous. And so if you live righteously, you can expect animosity. Again, that might surprise you. You might expect that the world will welcome such humble and merciful and loving people. But the reality is, That kind of a life, that kind of a heart, that kind of a focus leaves the world feeling exposed. They are exposed in their superficial virtue. They are exposed in their secret sins. They are exposed in their duplicity and their lack of sincerity. They are exposed in their greed. They are exposed in their envy. They are exposed in their hatred. They are exposed in their malice. They're exposed in their idolatry and in their impurity and immorality and all of those things. They feel exposed when they're around such righteous people and they don't like it. And so even though you clothe yourself with 
meekness, and even though you put on display mercy, and even though you do all that you can to live peaceably with all men, Jesus recognizes it's not always going to be possible. So the weather, secretly or openly, they will resent your commitments to this kind of righteousness. Peter says in 1 Peter 4, once again, he says, they're surprised when you do not join them in their flood of debauchery and they malign you. They're actually surprised. I mean, they, they, they interact with you and they share with you and they talk to you as if you're going to be just as interested in they are in whatever their pursuits are, whatever their self-indulgence is, and they're actually surprised that you don't run after the same pleasure mania, that you don't have a wild race after your own sinful desires, that you don't bow to their same idols, that you don't put a hope in their same gods, that you don't fear the things that they fear and hope for the things that they hope for, that you don't share their anger and malice and hatred and brawling and greed and everything else. They're surprised. And they actually malign you for it. They don't mind if you pray from time to time and they don't mind if you are a little bit religious and add church to your life. That's fine and well and good. But when you will not join them in their pursuits and in their causes, they're surprised. Because it actually makes them feel condemned. Just simply your faithful life makes them feel condemned. It undermines their sense of virtue. It undermines their sense of self-respect. It undermines their smug self-righteousness. Their sense of pride in their superiority over everyone else. It undermines all that. And so while they're hurling hatred and you're calling for mercy, while they're rejoicing in evil, you're mourning, and while they're talking of power and progress and the future, you're speaking of judgment and the throne of God and the coming kingdom. And so you're a burr in the saddle. You will not affirm their foolishness. You will not affirm them in their sense of personal goodness. And you will not sign on to their pursuits. As Jesus says a few verses later in verse 13, you're the salt of the world. You're salt of the earth. And the salt, it'll burn their wounds. You're the light of the world. And the light is going to blind and irritate their eyes. So what Jesus is saying, make no mistake about it, what he's saying in these Beatitudes is, a believer's different, and that difference is going to drive animosity. It's going to bring clear-cut division. And you need to be clear where it comes from. You need to be clear where it comes from. It comes from, first and foremost, a hatred of Christ. The world hasn't changed. As Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, he's filling up in his body, what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. What he means is, when the world hurled out all of its anger and hatred toward Christ on the cross, it wasn't finished. It still has anger and hatred toward Christ. And so whenever they're persecuting Paul, he says, I'm just kind of taking what the world still has to give to Christ. Or as Jesus says in John 15, 18, if the world hates you... Know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world and I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. If you were of the world, the world would love you. But because there is this distinction, because your life is marked by these beatitudes because you are so different, because you will not conform to their narrative, 
because you will not adopt their worldview, a worldview that is absent of God as the creator, that ignores God's role as the judge, that doesn't see God as providential over all the world, because you will not buy into their narrative. You are a problem. And so Jesus says, they're going to treat you the way they treated me. They hated me, they'll hate you. And to the extent that you are like Jesus, to that same extent, you will be despised by the world. Why? Because it's the same prince of the power of the air working in the sons of disobedience, which was at work against Jesus and his gospel in the first century and continues to be at work in all of the world and its systems. It's the same Satan that is behind all of it, who Paul calls the God of this world, who is intent on undermining God's name and God's glory, as well as his gospel and his truth. It's the same assault on God. They hated him, they'll hate you. In fact, Jesus goes on to say in verse In chapter 16, verse 1, I've said these things to keep you from falling away. It's a very real danger, he says, you're going to fall away. Verse 2, they'll put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. They're going to do these things, he says, even in the name of religion. It's going to come even from religious leaders. He says, they will do these things, verse 3, because they've not known the Father nor me. For all their talk about God, for all the prayers that they lift up, the God that they claim to know is not the God of the Bible. You look at their life, it doesn't resemble Christ. You listen to their message. It doesn't have the message of the hope of the gospel. All these things they do because they do not know Christ or the one who sent him. And we might add, they just simply despise the gospel. As Jesus says in Matthew 13, 21, persecution will arise because of the word. Or as Jesus said in John 3, 20, Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light because his deeds would be exposed. Or as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, the natural man doesn't accept the word of God because it's foolishness to him. So they have a hatred of Christ, they have an antagonism against his word, and they don't even know God. And so while they may adopt a religious stance at times, the last thing they want is to be held accountable to all that God says. So there's hatred, there's animosity, and it's all aimed at a cover-up for their secret sins. The indulgence of their flesh. And there's tremendous pressure that comes with that. There's pressure, there's intimidation to conform. There's There's intimidation to adopt the narrative or face the consequences. And what are the consequences? Jesus says it right here in verse 11. They'll revile you, which basically is a word for for insults. They will question your intellect. They will question your motives. They will call you ignorant and naive. They will say that you are intolerant, unloving, They'll say all that stuff in order to try to intimidate you to embrace their view. Or he says they'll persecute you, which is basically a word for chasing and often has the idea of pushing someone outside of boundaries. And so this is basically an effort to marginalize you. And so what they'll do is they'll marginalize you. They'll marginalize you within your own home and your family. They'll marginalize you within your workplace. They'll marginalize you within society. Or, he says, they'll utter all kinds of evil against you. So they'll try to discredit you. Or we would say in in modern culture, they'll try to cancel you. 
They'll question your motives. They'll interpret your actions as evil, motivated by evil. They'll say all these things against you falsely. They'll magnify your faults. And all of that simply because you will not conform. You will not get in line. But for those people who feel that pressure, Jesus has a warning. In fact, look with me over at Luke chapter 6. Because Jesus gave these beatitudes. But Matthew doesn't record the full text of what he said, just portions of it. Luke gives us more insight. He says in verse 22 of Luke 6, Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on the account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, and so their fathers did the prophets. Look down at verse 26. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. For so their fathers did the false prophets. In other words, if the world is not ostracizing you in the way that he's talking about, if they're not casting their insults at you, Jesus pronounces a woe. He laments your faithlessness, your foolishness. In other words, Jesus recognizes that the world would be willing to accept us if we conform to its standards, if we embrace its goals. If we adopt the world's view of itself, if we no longer proclaim the need for mercy and the hope in God alone, if we're willing to put some distance between ourselves and Jesus Christ, if we're not out there talking to people about their poverty of spirit and the need for mourning and all those things, Jesus says, if you're willing to do all of that, Be warned, he says, because to the extent that you are not persecuted by the world, to that same extent, you have probably embraced its values, you've probably bowed to its gods and its idols, and you probably have defined righteousness by its standard, and you are mimicking its message. You've taken up its goals as your goals, you've made its values your values, you've embraced its causes as your cause, and you're unwilling now to confront its pride, its hypocrisy, its duplicity, and its fundamental need of repentance and faith for salvation. So the way to avoid all of this animosity It's very simple. Just conform. Just conform. Find the pattern and follow it. And finding the pattern is not hard. I mean, you can look up the bestseller list, see who the world loves to read about, who they love to write about. Turn on your movie. See which kind of celebrity or which kind of figures they love to celebrate. See who they glorify on the screen. Open up your your newspaper and see what they like to talk about, what they find to be praiseworthy, what fills their airwaves, and then just conform. And when you do that, you'll miss the persecution. You might even garner their praise. You might even be congratulated. But you'll have the woe from Christ. Martin Lloyd-Jones, 80 years ago, said this, If our conception of Jesus is such that he can be admired and applauded by non-Christians, we have a wrong view of him. 
The effect of Jesus Christ upon his contemporaries was that many threw stones at him. They hated him. And finally, choosing a murderer instead of him, they put him to death. This is the effect Jesus Christ has upon the world. John MacArthur writes, We live in a day when, as never before, the, world, the church is anxious to gain the world's approval. We can trust, however, that when the world is pleased with the church, God is not. The fact that many professed believers are popular and praised by the world today doesn't indicate that the world has raised its standards, but that many who call themselves by Christ's name have lowered theirs. End quote. So woe to you, Jesus says. Woe to you if you're getting the kudos and the pats on the back because you've conformed to their message. Woe. Woe to you. You've taken your alignment with the religious false prophets of the past. But for the faithful, for the faithful, Jesus says persecution is inevitable. They hated me, they'll hate you. And your response, he says, ought to be what? Joy. It ought to be joy. Rejoice, he says in verse 12. Rejoice and be glad. That may not be your initial sort of reaction when they're hurling their insults and they're questioning your motives and they're uh, uh, accusing you of all kinds of things falsely. You are probably tempted at that point not to a place of joy, but a place of despair and depression. You're probably wondering why, why in the world was, are people responding this way? Why, why, do I not, why am I not able to get across to them the genuine care and genuine love and genuine concern? Why can they not see that I'm willing to sacrifice in so many ways to love them and how sincere I am in that? Why does it have to be this way? And you are tempted, if anything else, to slide into a place of gloom. But Jesus says, actually, you, you should have a kind of joy. First of all, he says, because... There's a reward because none of the suffering and none of the loss and none of the uh, insults or whatever, none of the things that you are going through are going to be forgotten. Not a single day, not a single insult, not a single abuse. None of it is going to be overlooked. You may think it is. You may have days when you imagine that God doesn't seem to care or he's not really paying attention But he gives us this to remind us of that fact, that God is going to reward all of these things. People recoil at the idea of serving Christ for eternal rewards, but that's not the point. The point is not that we're doing this for rewards. We're doing this because we love him, or more importantly, we're doing this because he loved us. But he wants to remind us That while you are suffering and it seems like God is perhaps even far off and not at work, as you you absorb the blows and the insults from those near and far who despise your righteousness, He wants to remind you that none of it will be forgotten. There will be rewards for all of it. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, we do not lose heart. Though our outer man is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are transient, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So you're going through life and your focus is on the things which are not seen. And that in itself is a provocation to the world. They can't imagine that you would be more concerned about those unseen realities than the seen realities. But that's your focus. Your focus is on faithfulness to Christ. Your focus is on the rewards that he's promised you. And you simply want to die in that position of faithfulness to him. 
And so a part of persecution is the fact that it reminds you that this isn't your home. Part of persecution is the fact that it reminds you that this is not where your treasures are. This is not where your rewards are. This is not where you've placed your hope in this life. Secondly, Jesus says you are to rejoice not just because of those reminders of rewards, but you're to rejoice, he says, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So you rejoice because this persecution becomes a confirmation. A confirmation that your life and your righteousness as it's lived out faithfully is putting you in good company. Because this is the way that persecuted all faithful servants of Christ. You want to stand with the great people of faith? You have to suffer with the great people of faith. There are no shortcuts. There are no exceptions. And so the way the world treated the prophets becomes the standard by which you are to measure yourself. And so when you suffer, as they did, it ought to be a cause of joy because it's confirming, it's confirming that you stand with them. And Hebrews 11, verse 35, remembers, uh, reminds us about them. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Hebrews eleven thirty six. others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And the writer says, of whom the world was not worthy. You want to stand in company with that crew? Don't expect to be a pat, get patted on the back by the world. Don't expect to be congratulated, to be praised by the world. Expect persecution. You do that, Jesus is implying, you're doing something right. You're doing something right. I can't help but think of the poem by Amy Carmichael when I read these passages. Hast thou no scar, no hidden scar on foot or side or hand? I hear thee sung as mighty in the land. I hear them hail thy bright ascendant star. Hast thou no scar? No wound, no scar, yet as the master shall the servant be, and pierced are the feet that follow me, but yours are whole. Can he have followed far who has no wounds, no scar? Summarizes Jesus' words very well there. Where is your persecution? Where do you see the animosity of the world against you? Or where have you embraced its message, conformed to its pursuits? Well, if that's the exposition, what about the example? And we could go all kinds of places. Obviously, Jesus already mentioned the prophets, right? All these prophets who suffered at the hands of their fellow countrymen for various reasons, maligned in their motives, falsely accused, their words are twisted, their message is distorted, in some cases to mean the exact opposite of what they're trying to say. All that stuff is there. But I thought we could just turn over to Acts 16 and follow the brief narrative of the Apostle Paul and kind of what his life looked like. Acts 16, and just to remind you, this comes right after the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 where Paul had to go to Jerusalem to defend his message against those who were twisting and distorting his words already. They had tried to impose on the church the strictures of 
Jewish law, and Paul had to go before the leaders of the Jerusalem church to defend his gospel. The result of that was a letter wherein they affirmed Paul's preaching and affirmed that the Jews are not imposing any of this on the Gentiles. The Gentiles are free from all of those kinds of Jewish regulations, and they simply call on the Gentiles to not put unnecessary stumbling blocks in the way of their Jewish brethren. And so in Acts 16, Paul has received now this document, this letter from the Jerusalem leaders, and he's going back and he's, re- he's delivering it primarily to the churches of Galatia along the, the southern shore of Turkey there. And then after having done that, we read in verse 9, when they'd come all the way across up to Mysia, they attempted to go north into Bithynia, which would have been northern Turkey, But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them, and so passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. So he's there on the west coast of Turkey. He has a vision in the night, and um, they call him across the Aegean Sea over into uh, basically northern Greece, Macedonia area. They do that, and they set sail, you read in verse 11, from Troas and made direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony, and we remained in this city for some days. This is a bit of Paul's missionary philosophy. He doesn't stop in Samothrace or Neapolis. He doesn't stop in those small towns. He makes aim for the leading cities, the influential Cities. He knows he has limited time and limited resources. He wants to have the broadest and biggest impact he can. And so he makes way for these significant places. He gets there and he finds this large city of Philippi doesn't apparently have a synagogue. But there were Jews and, and uh, maybe some God-fearers who gathered down by the river to pray on the Sabbath. And again, part of his strategy is not to go to those already hardened elements, not to make himself a nuisance to people who really have no time or interest to begin with in anything he has to talk about. He looks for the people who are at least open for conversation. And so he goes down to these people who are down by the river and he begins to talk to them about the gospel. And in verse 16, you can see he just kept going down there over and over again, initially a lady named Lydia comes to Christ and her whole household believes along with her. And then on one of these trips in verse 16, he encounters a slave girl who has a demon and he casts the demon out. Now up to this point, people are fine, it seems, with Paul and his little religious thing going on down at the river. They don't really have any issues It doesn't seem, as long as he's kind of keeping to himself and not intruding on their space. But this is different. This is different. Because this girl, we're told, had produced much gain. They had used her. She was their pawn and their sort of tool to pursue their particular ends and their particular goals. And so the fact that Paul came in and cast a demon out of this girl and preached the truth to her and brought her to Christ, the fact that he did all that, now that was unacceptable to them. And so when they saw it in verse 19, they saw their hope of gain was gone. They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. That's not true. None of that is true. Paul isn't advocating anything that's illegal. He's not advocating anything that's wrong. But what they're doing is exactly what Jesus says they would do. They're falsely accusing them. They're twisting his words. They're assigning to him motives that aren't there. And they're doing all of this in a public uproar. And why? Why? 
Not because they're really concerned about the laws and not because they're really concerned about the customs. Why? Because at the end of the day, they want personal gain. So all of their talk about customs and laws and legality and all that other stuff is a farce. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore their garments off and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. And having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. Now you would imagine Paul sitting there and thinking, what, what, what went wrong? I mean, all we were doing is trying to help people. All we were doing is trying to preach the gospel. All we did was release this girl from her bondage to a demon. You would expect him to kind of be cast into a point of despair and self-pity. But in verse 25, at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Rejoice, Jesus says, rejoice. Rejoice when they malign you, when they cast insults at you and accuse you of all kinds of things falsely. Rejoice. It's a sign that you're doing something right, right? And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that all the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds was unfa- were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do no harm to yourself, we are all here. The jailer called for the lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? It's exactly what you want right here. Faithful. Even while suffering, you give a testimony. The other prisoners are even listening in. They don't understand why you're singing. But when it's all said and done and everything shakes out, here literally by an earthquake, but when all the dust settles and the chaos of the uproar of the crowds is gone, here you have a jailer saying, what do I have to do to be saved? You're the real deal. Paul was able to offer him hope. Verse 31, Believe in the Lord and you will be saved, you and your household. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house and he took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them into his house and set food before them and he rejoiced along with the entire household that he had believed in God. Now, verse 35, when it was day, the magistrates sent to the police saying, let those men go. Somehow along the way, they realized this was not going to go in a good direction. This is going to be trouble. It's more trouble than it's worth. Maybe they realized that they had reacted rashly or whatever it might be. The jailer reports these words to Paul saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They've beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come out themselves and take us out. Now, here's the Apostle Paul And he knows that under the law, the law which, by the way, he had been falsely accused of violating, he knows under the law he has rights as a Roman citizen. As a matter of fact, they had no legal right to beat him the way they did without giving him a just trial because of his Roman citizenship, but they never never bothered to ask him about that. And now, these guys know that they are themselves liable of condemnation because they have violated the law of Rome. So the police report these things to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came out and apologized to them. And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. 
So Paul went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when he had seen the brothers, he encouraged them and departed. Now you have to understand what's going on here. Paul makes an appeal to the established laws of the land, not because he's looking for any kind of personal vendetta against these men, not even because he wants personal gain. He's not about vengeance. Paul is never about vengeance and getting back at these illegalities. That's not what it's for him. Uh, for, for him. But he understands that he's going to leave and there's a fledgling church that he's going to leave behind. And so to the extent that he can, his interest in the law is simply to protect these new believers, these young believers. Because he knows the animosity is not going to go away. But at least he could put some fear in the magistrates so that they would leave their hands off of the church for a while. They go on down, verse 17. They passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia and they came to Thessalonica, which was another major city on the, on the, uh, um, the, the major road there. And they, along the way, they go into the Sabbath excuse me, into the synagogue on the Sabbath, as was their custom. There's, they don't gather here along the river. They have a synagogue. And so Paul goes there because, once again, these are the people who would at least propose to have some interest in dialogue. And so Paul wants to preach to them. He preaches for them over the course of three Sabbaths, and people respond He explains, verse 3, and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and and saying to them, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. His message is clear. It's simple. It's just Christ. It's all he's interested in. He's not there to sort of enter into legal debates or, you know, all that other stuff with the magistrates. He just wants to preach Christ. Some of them were persuaded, verse 4, and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jacob, seeking to bring uh, them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men have turned the world upside down, or these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. So they've picked up on the, uh, they picked up on the rumors from what happened in Philippi, and they go out there and they do what has happened so many times through history. They find some rabble who are out on the street and they sort of stir them up for whatever reason. Probably by the time the whole sort of protest and and thing gets going, people aren't even quite sure why they're there, but they're happy to join in. And in the uproar, they go and attack Jason and drag them out before the authorities. The people in the city People in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as a security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Here again, once again, these people are upset, not for reasons of unrighteousness, but for reasons of Paul's clear proclamation of the truth. They don't like the fact that God is at work, and they don't like the fact that Christ is being proclaimed and is penetrating into the lives, particularly of even some of the leading women of the city, some of the leading households, you might say. And so they stir up a protest. They stir up a mob. And they give the impression that somehow these men are out to upset society and the laws. None of it's true. But Paul understands the implications of this. Verse 9, when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest. So they extract from these new believers some sort of bond, some sort of financial promise. Basically, security saying that if you don't do what's necessary to quell these riots, 
We're gonna, you're going to forfeit this money. We're going to keep the money that we've seized from you. We'll hold it as security right now. But you're going to lose everything. And Paul understood the financial implications and impact on his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ now. And so rather than, rather than fighting back and rather than calling for trials and appealing to the laws and all that other stuff, Verse 10, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas on their way by night to Berea. Verse 13, but the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea, and they also came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. And the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea with Silas and Timothy staying there. You see, it just doesn't end. It it doesn't end. I mean, these people are never satisfied in Paul's life. They're going to accuse him. They're going to chase him wherever he goes. They're going to come along and say that he's an agitator. They're going to come along and say that he's upsetting people. They're going to come along and say that he's preaching things that are contrary to the laws and the customs. None of it's true. But they just run him out from town to town. They marginalize him in every way that they can. And he gets down to Athens and he, he encounters the philosophers there. And uh, they, they, they gather him, they invite him into their little meeting hall at the Areopagus and they ask him, what does this babbler wish to say? Others say he seems to be preaching foreign divinities because he preached Jesus Christ and the resurrection. And they took him and asked him to kind of present his views He does that in verse 22 all the way down through verse 30, ultimately telling them that the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now God commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed. And of this, he's given us assurance by raising him from the dead. And at that hearing of the raising of the dead, some of them mocked him. Others dismissed him. Basically shuffled him off saying, we'll listen to you later. That's just a portion of Paul's life. He had uh, no doubt expected it. He knew it would be coming because he knew that those who are faithful to the clear and simple proclamation of Christ. Those who are willing to stand and tell the world that God has fixed a day for your judgment and that the only hope that you have is Jesus Christ. For someone who's committed to that message alone and lives out a righteous life, doesn't matter how peaceful, gentle, merciful you are, the world is going to malign you. It's going to mistreat you. It's going to marginalize you. It's going to question your motives. It's going to do all that. Jesus says you're blessed. When that's happening, you're blessed. God's seeing it all. He's remembering it all. He's not going to forget any of it. He's going to reward it. You're blessed. And just as importantly, you're blessed because that's the way they treated the prophets. It's the way they treated Paul. It's the way they treated Christ. So you're standing in good company. Keep standing. Keep holding firm. Don't give in to the world. Don't seek its applause. Don't expect its praise but cling to the simple message of Christ. Well, let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Lord, we need this reminder. We are so different from the world around us, so different in our life and so different in our message. And we know, Lord, to the extent that we clearly identify and proclaim the simple message of Christ, we will be despised. We understand that. We know our motives will be questioned. 
we're prepared for that. We know we'll be maligned and our actions will be misjudged and twisted. They did the same to you. They did the same to every faithful prophet. They'll do the same to us. Give us the courage and the clarity, Lord, to stand firm, fixed, forever on the righteousness to which you've called us to live out lives of meekness and mercy, gentleness and peacemaking, to live out that kind of a righteous life, to warn people of judgment, to remind them of the need for forgiveness, to tell them of Christ. May that fill our lips and our message. And as the world responds, Lord, may you comfort us with the hope of heaven and the fellowship of the saints. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.